Well, if you haven't seen uh, The Matrix starring Keanu Reeves, it's a movie about a remnant of humans in the future who live on an earth that has been taken over by computers. The humans can travel in and out of a digital world known as The Matrix, but in the real world, they are hunted by vicious mechanical enemies. Deep under the surface of the earth, though, far from the detection of these digital enemies, the humans have a home. They call it Zion. Zion has everything they need, safety, food, air, community. Humans who have to venture to the surface are always eager to make it back home. And in this scene from The Matrix Part 2, Neo, Morpheus, and his crew finally make it home to Zion. Now, throughout much of human history, this is what Zion represents. It represents home. The name Zion is actually another name for the city of Jerusalem in Israel. It's the name of the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. But Zion was more than a mountain. It was even more than a city. For Jews, Zion represents their eternal home. And for generations, God's people have been eager to return home to Zion, but it can be hard to make your way back home. As many of us know, the road home can actually be a very difficult one. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning in our next installment of our extended study on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you're just joining us, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, The series is called Isaiah for Today, and Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century before Jesus. Um, and the city, the city, the country of Judah. Now, Judah was God's people, his family that he had created to be a light to the nations, to live holy, humble lives, an inspiration to the rest of humanity. For the most part, the people of Judah did not do this. God said, hey, this was the agreement. I'm going to give you a big, nice promised land flowing with milk and honey, and you're going to live holy, humble lives. And they said, oh, we're just going to enjoy the land and not do what you ask. And God said, that wasn't the agreement. So finally, he says, Uh, I'm going to allow you to be destroyed by your enemies. And he sends a prophet named Isaiah to let them know this. And Isaiah's poetry and prophecies have been collected for us in the Old Testament book of his name. Now, as we've seen, Isaiah, big and complicated book, as opposed to doing it chapter by chapter, we're sort of looking all over the book for different themes. Uh, Themes about sin, themes of God's character. And the uh, the series, the mini-series that we're in right now is called What Happened? Throughout the book of Isaiah, we actually get little snippets of what happened to the nation of Judah at this point uh, in their history. The story is never really told chapter by chapter, but we get little snippets in the poetry of what happened. I showed this to you last week, but I think it bears showing again. This is sort of a general timeline of what happened to Judah over the course of Isaiah. Uh, They are, at first, they resist, the nation of Judah resists their enemies, the Assyrians, But they cannot resist all their enemies, and they cannot resist Babylon. Babylon defeats Assyria, and then Babylon attacks Jerusalem and destroys the city and the temple. And then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon takes all of uh, the citizens of Jerusalem and transports them to Babylon, where they live in exile for 70 years. 70 years of divine timeout, if you will. But then Babylon is destroyed by Cyrus of Persia, and the Jews can go home. Cyrus tells them you can go home to Jerusalem, and they head home to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. Now, last week, we talked about God's judgment on the Babylonians through the Persians. 
what it means for us. This morning, I want to talk about number five here. They're not numbered, but it's number five. When Cyrus of Persia uh, defeats Babylon and gives the Jews permission to return back home. After 70 years, they can finally go back. But as we'll see, 70 years is a long time. Would they go home? What would they find when they got there? And the all-important question, what does this mean for us? Now, for our text this morning, I've chosen a passage from Isaiah 48. It's a bit long, but it's good. Let me go ahead and share with you, uh, share it with you, after which we will discuss it. Starting in verse 12, I believe. Listen to me, O Jacob. Israel, whom I have called. Those are two names for the people of Judah, Jacob and Israel. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of these idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord. For the wicked. Now there's a lot going on there, so let me try to explain. This poem is a prophecy to Jews who were forced to leave their homeland and were taken into captivity in the city of their mortal enemies, the Babylonians. And we've talked about this before. I'm talking, talking about the exile when the Jews would be taken captive. Here in chapter 48, though, God is reassuring his people that he has a plan to break them out of Babylonian jail. Here's the plan. Isaiah refers to a chosen ally of the Lord. That chosen ally is likely King Cyrus of Persia, who defeats the Babylonians in 539 BC. God has anointed the pagan Cyrus to bring judgment on the oppressors of his people. And when it happens, God wants the credit for predicting it and bringing it to pass. It's not the idols who made this prediction. It's not the astrologers who made this prediction. It's God through the prophet. As he writes, come together, all of you, and listen, which of these idols foretold these things? 
Following this assurance of Babylon's destruction, the Lord reasserts his credentials as the only true God. I am he, I am the first, I am the last, I am the Lord your God, he writes, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If the Israelites had listened to him in the first place, they would never be in this Babylonian mess. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, God says, if only. But the Lord does not abandon them. After 70 years in exile, 70 years in divine time out, he has made a way for his people to come home. And when the city of Babylon falls, they should seize it. Leave Babylon, he says. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now, history tells us that this is actually exactly what happens. Babylon was defeated by Cyrus, who then gives them permission to come home. There's another book in the Old Testament which describes the fall of Babylon and the difficult transition home that the Jews had to Jerusalem. The book is actually called Ezra Nehemiah. And that book describes the very slow return of the Jews to their homeland and the difficulties they had rebuilding their city, rebuilding their temple, reestablishing their nation. What I think is really interesting here, though, is that this notion of returning to Zion remains a thing. You probably know that the Jews have been kicked out of their homeland on many occasions. The Babylonians kicked them out. The Romans came along and kicked them out. The Byzantines came and kicked them out. The Christians eventually kicked them out. The Muslims kicked them out. For some reason, all sorts of people wanted the promised land. Maybe they wanted its milk and honey. After each exile, some Jews would try to kind of make their way back to their homeland only to get kicked out again. Instead of getting kicked out over and over again, the Jews eventually decided to settle around the globe in what's known as the Jewish diaspora. It's a fancy, smancy word meaning the Jewish scattering. The Jews remained scattered around the world for over a thousand years, far from their homeland. Following World War II, though, the nation of Israel as a physical place was refounded. Israel as a modern nation was reestablished in 1948. The Jewish diaspora saw an opportunity to return once again to Zion. Maybe they thought they wouldn't get kicked out this time. Thousands of Jews packed up and headed home. Even today, Jews from around the globe are still trickling home. After centuries of being away, they still feel an undeniable connection to their homeland. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt the pull to return home? Some of us feel that way about St. Louis. My wife, Michelle, and I were both born and raised here. We went to college at Truman State in the 90s. We spent a couple years down in Austin, Texas, but we always felt a pull to come home to our Zion. Maybe it was our family. Maybe it was the free zoo. It was the Cardinals. Maybe it was the impressive crime rate and the uh, jail riots that are awesome. Who knows? But St. Louis has always been our home. It's one of the reasons we wanted to start a church here, in fact, because this is our home. For all its quirks, for all its imperfections, for all its civic dysfunction, we love this city, we love its people, it's our Zion. We wanted to show the grace and power of Jesus to the people who live in our home. Maybe you don't feel that way about St. Louis as your home, but where is your home? 
Up north, down south, across the state. Where's that place that pulls you back like Zion pulled back the Jews? Everyone needs a home. Home is where we know we belong. Home is our Zion. This is what Isaiah is promising the remnant of Jews living in Zion. I mean, many of them have died, but a remnant remained eager to go home. What I think is really interesting about this passage, though, in Isaiah 48, is how Isaiah describes their return home to Zion. This isn't just a return to Zion. This is something bigger. This has actually happened before in the Old Testament. He portrays this as a second exodus. Maybe you know what the Exodus is. If you don't, it's a very important event in the Old Testament that's recorded in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus. Very good. Centuries before the book of Isaiah, God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Even then, though, God was committed to them and brought them out of Egypt through the prophet Moses. Moses Uh, led them through the wilderness for 40 years, making their way slowly back home. They faced many trials in the wilderness. Most of them didn't make it. They complained the whole way. During the Exodus, the Hebrews were like kids in the back of your car on a car trip, complaining about needing to stop to go pee and getting into fights with their siblings. They even actually clamored to return to Egypt where they could enjoy their chains again as opposed to eating manna from the dust, despite their colossally bad attitudes. God and Moses stuck with them. He provided for their needs. As Isaiah says here in chapter 48, he says, send it to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. That's actually a reference to an incident in the Exodus when the Hebrews were dying of thirst and God provided walk, walk, water from the rock. I keep doing that. <laughs> water from the rock while splitting the rock and water gushing out so that they could be, uh, so they could drink. But in lots of places, the return from Zion is described as a second Exodus in Isaiah. Later in the book, in chapter 52, for example, the author is again predicting the return from Babylon. He writes this. Was it not you, Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. You might recognize this incident as a reference to God parting the Red Sea so that the Israelite slaves could escape the Egyptian army on their way to the Promised Land. Just as God dried up the ocean to get the Israelites home, he could deliver the redeemed from Babylon to Zion. Even the frequent references to Israel being redeemed and ransomed from Babylon hearken back to the Exodus. The ransomed of the Lord will return, Isaiah says. The Lord has redeemed his servant, he writes, to ransom To redeem someone is to buy them out of slavery. So just as God redeemed the Israelite slaves from Egypt, he would deliver his people as slaves from Babylon. Now, why am I going on about all this second Exodus stuff? I know you're wondering. Am I just nerding out on interesting Bible trivia? I actually think all this second Exodus stuff pertains 
to the so what question that we like to try to answer here at Rooftop. This is all very interesting, Pastor Matt, but so what? Thank you. We're all asking. Here's why I think this is important. Put yourself in the position of the Jews living in Babylon. You've been there 70 years. If you've been there for 70 years, that probably means that it's the only place you've ever known. If you were taken to Babylon as a captive, you're probably dead by now. Most of the Jews living in Babylon were probably born there. They had never lived in Jerusalem. They'd never seen Zion. In a way, Zion was not their home. Babylon was their home. They had families there. They had houses. Plus, it was a long way. Let me show you the route back home. That's not a hop, skip, and a jump. That's not a solid three-wood. That's a lot of walking on roads that aren't paved. No public transportation, no cars, just walking through a very hot, arid climate with kids and animals and boxes. People die trying to take journeys like this, and they knew it. As much as you might want to relocate to your parents' city of origin, which, by the way, has been destroyed and is a big pile of rocks, the option to stay settled in Babylon was quite alluring. In fact, history tells us that a lot of Jews chose to stay in Babylon. Some, to be sure, made the trip immediately, but some took decades to go back. Some never did. They just became Babylonians. It was just too tempting to stay. I actually remember feeling this way when my wife Michelle and I uh, moved to Texas after college. We lived down in Austin, Texas for a couple years. If you don't know, Austin is the coolest city on the planet, and everybody who lives there will tell you about it. They're very proud of it. It's hot, but has the best of conservative and liberal culture. It's got weird liberalism and uh, down-home Texas conservatism. You can listen to hippie music and watch bizarre art films while eating dry rib ribs. Uh, also, the city was booming at the time. There were an infinite number of ministry opportunities. Uh, the church that we were working at was thriving. They liked us. They needed us. We liked them. We could have stayed. St. Louis is a long way away. It's not as cool, kind of run down. We're comfortable here, we thought. We could just stay. But we knew. Austin's not our home. We weren't called to Austin. We were called to St. Louis. We were called to come home. The Jews weren't called to Babylon. Babylon was not their home. Jerusalem is their home. God's plan to rescue the world required Jerusalem to be rebuilt by his people. He needed them home. So he tells them, come home. Leave Babylon, he says. Flee from the Babylonians. Depart, depart, go out from here. This is not your home. And that's why Isaiah portrays this as a second exodus. You see, the last time the Israelites left a foreign nation for their homeland, it didn't go great. Lots of them died. They got lost in the wilderness for 40 years. The Jews remembered those stories of their time in the wilderness. Who wants to go through that again? But what does the prophet tell them? He tells them that God brought our ancestors through the wilderness to our homeland. He took care of us in the desert. We were thirsty. He split a rock to provide water. We were trapped against the Egyptians. He divided the sea so that we could escape. God took care of us in the first exodus. God can take care of us in the second. Which brings us back to the so what question. Let me be explicit here so you can see what this means for us. You see, if we're Christians, 
If we're Christians, we've been set free. We've been set free from Babylon. What do I mean? What have we been set free from? Well, we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from death. We've been set free from guilt. We've been set free from obligation. We've been set free from dysfunction. We've been set free from addiction. That's what Jesus came to earth to do. He came to set us free. When Jesus kicks off his ministry in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, he actually quotes Isaiah to announce that this is his purpose in coming to earth. Here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is from Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Jesus came to earth to set us free. By his death, he freed us from guilt. By his resurrection, he freed us from fear. By his spirit, he frees us from sin. By his church, he frees us from loneliness. That all happened. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been freed. You're no longer in jail. Your Babylon, your captor, has been destroyed by God's chosen ally. who is not Cyrus of Persia. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Jesus promises us in the Gospel of John, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. A lot of us know that. Some of us don't. We don't know we've been freed, but we have been. Even though we've been freed, though, we still live like prisoners. We still live addicted to sin. We still live imprisoned by shame. We still live devoid of hope. We still live terrified of death. We still live alone and separated. We've been freed, but we're still living in Babylon. Why? Because we're comfortable. And because the road home is long and hard. But we're comfortable here in Babylon. Babylon is all we've ever known. Sure, we could leave prison, but, you know, well, we'd just rather stay. It reminds me of that great scene from the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Maybe you know the film, family favorite. Uh, It's a a movie about a group of prisoners. One of them, Brooks Hatlin, has been at Shawshank for 50 years. It's all he knows. He's built... A life at Shawshank. He built a library at Shawshank. He built friends at Shawshank. He has a pet bird at Shawshank. Then, though, he finishes his term. He doesn't want to go, though. He doesn't want to experience his freedom. The world scares him. Freedom scares him. It scares him so much. What does he do? He tries to kill a fellow prisoner, a friend, so that he can stay in prison. It's sad, but it's fiction. What's sadder is the many non-fiction ways that you and I sabotage our lives so that we stay in prison of our sin and our guilt and our fear and our loneliness. The freedom that Jesus Christ gives us scares us. Babylon comforts us, so we'll do what we need to stay here, to stay in our chains. But Babylon is not our home. It was never meant to be. And God's word to us is his word to the Jews. Leave 
Babylon, free, uh, flee from the Babylonians, depart, depart, go out from here. Is freedom scary? Yes. Is the road home difficult? Yes. Might we get lost on the way? Yes. Might we have setbacks? Yes. But God needs us in Zion. God needs us living the fully redeemed lives of faith and power that we were called to. And he was, he's committed to helping us get there. Here in Isaiah, he promises his people that he can get them home. I am he, he writes. I am the first, I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. I created the heavens and the earth. I can get you home. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock, he says. If you get thirsty on the way, I will give you water. I can get you home. I can help you deal with your sin. I can help you deal with your fear. I can help you deal with your loneliness. But you have to get going. You have to pick up, take a bag. You have to get on the road. Which leads me to some questions for you. First, have you been freed? Have you been freed from Babylon? Have you received the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could live forever? Have you been baptized to take hold of the promise? Have you been freed? If you haven't been freed... We can get you freed here at Rooftop. That's what we do. We can get you saved. Talk to us. We'll get you freed. Secondly, though, maybe you've already been freed, but you're still stuck in Babylon. So, what's your Babylon? What's the city you still live in, even though you've been freed? Is it your lust? Is it your gluttony? Is it your shame? Is it your guilt? Is it your fear? Is it your isolation? Is it your dysfunction, your hopelessness, your depression? What's your Babylon? Those are Babylons. What's your Babylon? And finally, how can you flee it? You don't want to stay there. How can you flee it? What's your first step home? A meeting with the pastor? Sign up for a small group, get more involved in church, spending time in your journal, in prayer. Every journey home starts with the first step. What's your first step? And if you've already taken the first one, what's your next one? God wants to help you take that step. Even this morning, God is the first and the last. He laid the foundations of the earth. His right hand spread out the heavens. He makes water gush in the wilderness and splits oceans to pass through. Whatever it is keeping you in Zion, he's inviting you home to Zion. Let him take you home. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this message from Isaiah, which reminds us that you are quite good at getting people home. This was the second exodus, but there have many, been many exoduses since, even in our own lives. We were trapped in prison, in the prison of our Babylon, prison of our sin our guilt, our shame. We've been freed by what Jesus did, but so many of us stay behind because our lives are the only ones we've known. 
And we suspect that the road to freedom, the road home, can be difficult. And it can be. It can be treacherous. There are many challenges on the road of faith. Setbacks. Dark times, dark valleys. It's not necessarily an easy journey, but it's one we can make with you. You spread out the heavens. You are the first and the last. You make water come from rocks. You split oceans. You can get us home if we flee, if we leave. Give us the courage to leave. Leave our lives of sin. Leave our, leave our lives of isolation and loneliness. Leave our lives of guilt. We need hope, help needing, uh, knowing how to take those steps. And that's what the church is for. That's what friends are for. That's what pastors are for and leaders. We can't make this journey on our own. We can make it together. So thank you for the prophet's words. I pray that we can obey them. I pray that we not sit back and enjoy teaching and preaching and worship. I pray that we can obey and find the freedom in Jesus Christ that he died to give us. I pray for everybody here this morning that you are helping our brains understand those steps home for us. Help us think about this week, the steps we can take this week to head back home to Zion. If we live this week the same way we lived last week, then this sermon has been a complete waste of time. What can we do different to make our way home? Give us ideas and inspiration. We close our prayer time this morning, Father, by uh, reciting together, as we do on the first Sunday of every month, the words of the Apostles' Creed, words which remind us what Christians have believed over the centuries, what is true, words that will appear on the screen for those who need them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.